Chapter 16, Part 2 Going West April to August 2005 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 16, Part 2 Going West April to August 2005 the Western Euphrates River Valley, or WERV, Campaign Realizing that the level of resources that had been available in Anbar province for the first half of 2005 was insufficient, MNCI flowed reinforcements westward to meet Casey's intent. MNFW received three additional army battalions, taken from three separate commands, as MNCI did not have an uncommitted operational reserve considerable army intelligence assets, and even the 13th Marine Expeditionary Unit, CENTCOM's Theater Reserve. The arrival of the additional combat power would allow Regimental Combat Team 2, the subordinate marine element that had responsibility for Area of Operations Atlanta in western Anbar province, to consolidate its forces closer to the border and increase the tempo of its operations. From the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force, or CJSOTF, an entire company, one of only nine in the country at the time, moved from Kirkuk to Anbar, accompanied by a Navy Sea, Air, and Land Teams, or SEAL, task unit, representing the first special forces returning to Anbar in nearly a year. Before the arrival of these additional forces, only a single regimental combat team of 3,200 Marines and sailors had held the westernmost districts of Anbar province, a battle space of about 77,700 square kilometers, equal in size to the state of South Carolina. By the time all of the reinforcements arrived in the early fall, more than 14,000 coalition troops were occupying the same area. As these forces concentrated, MNCI planned Operation Sayade, or Hunter, more commonly called WERV by the Marines, focusing on re-establishing control of Al-Qaim and Haditha. The operation also envisioned that the Marines would push east near Ramadi as a hammer against the anvil of the 3rd Infantry Division in Baghdad. As MNCI and MNFI drew up the details of Operation Sayade, a challenge emerged north of the Euphrates that had first materialized during Operation Matador. Originally, the Marines and Multinational Forces West, or MNFW, had responsibility for both sides of the river, with the boundary between their area of operations and Multinational Brigade Northwest, or MNBNW, lying north of the river. However, a lack of bridging assets made it, quote, extraordinarily dangerous, end quote, in Vines's words, for the Marines to consistently operate north of the river. As a result, MNFW had limited its presence and operations there, meaning that the territory along the Syrian border north of the Euphrates River but south of Tel Afar in Nineveh province had become an open seam between the two coalition commands. For all intents and purposes, the vast Jazeera Desert region, an area with a rich smuggling history, had been left virtually undefended against incursions from Syria. After a considerable internal debate, MNCI closed the gap by shifting the boundary between MNFW and MNBNW south and assigning MNBNW responsibility for the north bank of the Euphrates. 
This decision, based on MNCI's inability to convince MNFW to reposition forces internally, created significant discord among the coalition commanders because it meant that MNBNW had to move some of its already limited combat power hundreds of kilometers away from its original area of responsibility and stretch its extended span of command and control even farther. Simply resupplying the forces in the new sector from Mosul would require over seven hours of driving each way. The boundary change, however, did enable MNFW to focus its combat power over a smaller area and push additional forces to the Syrian border from Fallujah and Ramadi. As Task Force Freedom took up its expanded battle space in MNBNW, MNCI ordered Major General David M. Rodriguez's command to establish a combat outpost in the desert roughly 30 kilometers northeast of the town of Rawa by July 15th. It was a location theoretically optimal for patrolling roads on the north side of the Euphrates River and running interdiction missions into the empty Jazeera desert space between the two major routes from Syria. Given the size of the area to be covered, Rodriguez and Task Force Freedom ordered the 1st Brigade 25th Infantry Division, a striker brigade, in Mosul to send its reconnaissance squadron with an attached infantry company to establish the new outpost. After establishing Combat Outpost Rawa, the soldiers began patrolling the towns along the north side of the river and realized their fears of finding an insurgent sanctuary were well-founded. When the Reconnaissance, Surveillance, and Target Acquisition, or RSTA squadron, first entered Rawa, it had to fight its way into town, enduring two dozen improvised explosive device, or IED, attacks and eight suicide car bombs in its first month after arriving. At MNFI's request, other special operations forces also supported Casey's operational surge into Anbar as part of the WERV campaign. Combat elements were pushed west to the newly cleared outpost at Rawa along with additional enablers, support assets, and rotary wing assets, all aimed at disrupting the flow of foreign fighters and targeting key leaders. The increased assets included the significant deployment of a new battalion that had served as a strategic reserve in the United States and required authorization by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for commitment to Iraq. In a change from normal command relationships that regularly had special operations forces working to support conventional forces, MNCI instead designated the assigned special operations headquarters at Combat Outpost Rawa as the supported element, with some Army and Marine conventional forces in support. Support from conventional forces included ISR, strikers, a company of Apache attack helicopters, a multiple launch rocket system battery, and a platoon-sized quick reaction force. The 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment to Nineveh Province As part of his operational plan to re-establish control of the Iraqi-Syrian border, in May, Vines ordered all but one squadron of the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment to reposition from southern Baghdad to Nineveh province. While the move of the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment to Nineveh represented a northern complement to the WERV campaign that aimed to shut down the foreign fighter infiltration route that passed through Sinjar and Mosul, it also was a tacit recognition of the under-resourcing of MNBNW. The move also highlighted the turbulence of forces that was a byproduct of not having an operational reserve. The 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment's repositioning came a mere three months after it had assumed responsibility for its original battle space in the infamous Triangle of Death area encompassing the towns of Yusufia, Mahmudia, and Lutufia, south of Baghdad. 
The addition of these forces effectively doubled the combat power in Nineveh province, and MNBNW was temporarily renamed MNFNW. Task Force Freedom then assigned the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment the mission of pacifying the town of Tel Afar and the terrain beyond the town to the Syrian border, including Sinjar and the border town of Rabia. At the same time, the unit was tasked to block insurgent infiltration from Syria. The new concentration of combat power allowed Task Force Freedom to focus its remaining brigade, 1st Brigade 25th Infantry Division, on Mosul. The Zarqawi-Zawahiri Dispute Just as the coalition had experienced considerable internal debate and disagreement over how to respond properly to al-Qaeda in Iraq's operational moves, AQI experienced similar discord with its professed headquarters of al-Qaeda's senior leaders in Pakistan over what constituted the most appropriate strategy. Zarqawi's tendencies to use unrestrained violence and to target Iraq's Shia population deeply worried al-Qaeda's senior leaders. While unafraid to massacre civilians when it served their purposes, al-Qaeda's central leaders generally made cautious, almost business-like calculations before launching attacks to maximize their effectiveness and achieve the desired intent. By contrast, Zarqawi seemed to be driven by a deeply held theological hatred of the Shia, a reckless style that many in al-Qaeda's senior levels were coming to believe was counterproductive. It was this style that prompted Ayman al-Zawahiri, thought to be the intellectual brains of al-Qaeda, to write Zarqawi a letter on July 9th, warning him that he had gone operationally off track and asking him to get back on course. In the letter, Zawahiri expressed concern that the violence and sectarian strife that Zarqawi sowed endangered his movement's popular support in Iraq and neighboring countries. Quote, If we are in agreement that the victory of Islam and the establishment of a caliphate in the manner of the Prophet will not be achieved except through jihad against the apostate rulers and their removal, then this goal will not be accomplished by the Mujahid movement while it is cut off from popular support. In the absence of this popular support, the Islamic Mujahid movement would be crushed in the shadows. End quote. To avoid losing this popular support, Zawahiri counseled Zarqawi that, quote, the Mujahid movement must avoid any action that the masses do not understand or approve, if there is no contravention of Sharia religious law in such avoidance, and as long as there are other options to resort to. End quote. Zawahiri specifically criticized Zarqawi's practices of beheading hostages and attacking Shia Muslims, which the al-Qaeda leader believed jeopardized the popular support he deemed so critical to al-Qaeda's broader efforts. Zawahiri was blunt in his challenge to Zarqawi's tactics, explaining that, quote, Among the things which the feelings of the Muslim populace who love and support you will never find palatable also are the scenes of slaughtering the hostages. You shouldn't be deceived by the praise of some of the zealous young men in their description of you as the sheikh of the slaughterers. They do not express the general view of the admirer and the supporter of the resistance in Iraq, and of you in particular. End quote. Zawahiri noted that while he believed the coalition used equally brutal tactics, citing the use of cluster bombs, depleted uranium, and the death of his own wife and daughter, Al-Qaeda should not bring itself to the same level for practical reasons. Al-Qaeda should not be governed by emotion in its responses, Zawahiri concluded, because at least half of the battle would be fought on the media battlefield, 
where maintaining popular support and the, quote, hearts and minds, end quote, of the Muslim community was paramount. On the topic of provoking a sectarian civil war, Zawahiri wrote that most Muslims had not come to realize that the Shia were apostates, and as a result, quote, many of your Muslim admirers among the common folk are wondering about your attack on the Shia. The sharpness of this questioning increases when the attacks are on one of their mosques, and it increases more when the attacks are on the mausoleum of Imam Ali bin Abi Talib, may God honor him, end quote. Attacking the Shia, Zawahiri warned, quote, won't be acceptable to the Muslim population, however much you have tried to explain it, end quote. Mirroring Abizaid's counsel not to provoke a fight with Shia militants in early 2004, Zawahiri warned Zarqawi that starting a civil war with the Shia was folly because it amounted to the opening of a second unnecessary front when AQI was already fully committed in its fight to eject the coalition. Emphasizing the difficulties associated with opening such a second front, Zawahiri rhetorically asked Zarqawi, quote, Can the Mujahideen kill all of the Shia in Iraq? Has any Islamic state in history ever tried that? What loss will befall us if we did not attack the Shia? End quote. He also questioned why Zarqawi would want to openly publicize making war against the Shia and claim responsibility for such attacks, noting that doing so, quote, compels the Iranians to take countermeasures, end quote, which could endanger the de facto Iranian al-Qaeda non-aggression pact. Pointing out that Iran held over 100 al-Qaeda leaders in custody, Zawahiri reasoned, quote, we and the Iranians need to refrain from harming each other at this time in which the Americans are targeting us, end quote. Zawahiri also addressed the topic of the overall objectives of the Iraqi jihad and how they should be achieved. First, Zawahiri reaffirmed the centrality of the campaign in Iraq for al-Qaeda's global strategy and instructed Zarqawi that his ultimate objective should be re-establishing the caliphate in the country. He wrote, quote, The victory of Islam will never take place until a Muslim state is established in the manner of the Prophet in the heart of the Islamic world, specifically in the Levant, Egypt, and the neighboring states of the peninsula and Iraq, end quote. Yet as a first step, Zawahiri counseled, Zarqawi's primary near-term objective should be expelling coalition forces from Iraq. Declaring the return of the caliphate too early was unwise, Zawahiri judged, because it might bring stronger external opposition against al-Qaeda in Iraq. Instead, Zawahiri argued that an emirate should be established in Iraq, but only after American forces had withdrawn. The Al-Qaeda emirate should be allowed to grow and strengthen before the declaration of an Islamic state and the return of the caliphate. Despite the warnings from Zawahiri, Zarqawi continued along the same path, barely altering his tactics. The disagreements between Al-Qaeda's senior leadership hiding in Afghanistan and Pakistan and its more violent Iraqi offshoot would persist until relations between the two groups would finally fracture in 2014. Targeting of the New Government and the International Presence Over the summer and early fall of 2005, Iraq's internal security situation deteriorated, with elected officials attacked by rival factions intent on affecting the future government and enhancing the power of their own ethno-sectarian groups. Zarqawi's operatives and other Sunni insurgent groups continued to assassinate and intimidate government leaders and Shia religious leaders as a way to undermine the legitimacy of the new Shia government, 
but rival Shia organizations and Iranian proxies also joined in the violence. On April 18th, two days before an attempted assassination of Alawi, insurgents assassinated Major General Adnan Karagoli, a senior advisor to the defense minister, in his home in southern Baghdad. On July 1st, gunmen killed a senior aide to Grand Ayatollah Sistani in a drive-by shooting outside a Baghdad mosque. On the same day, a car bomb struck the offices of Prime Minister Jafari, killing one Iraqi. Also on that day, a mortar attack against a government-run power station caused a water plant to shut down, leaving millions of Baghdad residents without running water in 100-degree temperatures. Lower-level government officials were targeted as well, with 83 mid-ranking officials assassinated from the start of the year until the end of June, and reported acts of intimidation against Iraqi police increased 73% over the same period. Intimidation events of all classes skyrocketed in the fall as the elections approached, jumping from a generally consistent monthly average of approximately 70 events from March through August to 275 in September and nearly 400 in October. Attacks against weaker members of the coalition and supporters of the new Iraqi government persisted during the same period. On July 2nd, al-Qaeda operatives kidnapped and executed the new Egyptian ambassador shortly after his arrival in Iraq, making him the most senior hostage to be murdered since the start of the conflict. His killing was meant as a message to neighboring states that supporting the new Shia-led government would carry a price, even among those who normally had immunity. In the case of Egypt, the attempt to isolate the new Iraq from its neighbors was effective, as the Egyptians did not assign a new ambassador to Baghdad until 2009. A mere three days after the abduction of the Egyptian ambassador, gunmen attacked separate convoys carrying the senior diplomats for Bahrain and Pakistan, wounding the Bahraini diplomat and leading Pakistan to withdraw its ambassador. Sixteen days after those attacks, al-Qaeda in Iraq continued the tactic by abducting and eventually murdering two Algerian diplomats in Baghdad. On July 7th, four terrorists inspired by the larger al-Qaeda movement detonated bombs on London's public transportation network, killing 52 and injuring over 700. While the bombers had no direct ties to al-Qaeda in Iraq, in pre-recorded videos aimed at the Western audience, they described themselves as soldiers, praised Osama bin Laden, Zawahiri, and Zarqawi as heroes, and promised additional attacks that would, quote, continue and become stronger until you pulled your troops out of Afghanistan and Iraq, end quote. A second set of terrorists made a failed attempt at similar strikes in London two weeks later. These assaults were in keeping with Zawahiri's advice to Zarqawi to focus on expelling the coalition rather than focusing on the Shia, but, unlike many of the previous attacks on coalition countries, they did not buckle the British support for the mission. The Arrival of Ambassador Khalilzad On July 24th, the senior U.S. diplomat Zalmay Khalilzad arrived in Iraq to fill the ambassador's post that had been vacant for four months. Khalilzad was an Afghan-American Sunni Muslim who had served in senior Department of Defense, or DOD, and Department of State posts in various administrations. Prior to his appointment as ambassador to Iraq, he had served as the ambassador to Afghanistan, and his experiences there shaped his approach to Iraqi politics. 
In Afghanistan, he had become well-versed in the basic concepts of counterinsurgency and had broken new ground on collaboration between embassy and military commands, championing the concept of provincial reconstruction teams that focused on nation-building and economic development. Khalilzad also arrived with a Washington-endorsed mission of reversing the January Sunni boycott. Whereas Casey and other MNFI leaders believed Negroponte had slowed outreach to Sunnis in the crucial period before the January 2005 elections, Khalilzad arrived in July with an explicit mission of persuading Sunnis to join the political process in time for the constitutional referendum and the next round of parliamentary elections. Casey was predisposed to such outreach, and by July he had begun proposing to use engagement and non-lethal tools with Sunni rejectionists and insurgents who espoused the ideas of neither AQI nor the Ba'ath Party as a way of driving a wedge between different elements of the insurgency. Also during the summer, Bush had asked Casey to remain the MNFI commander for another year, until roughly June 2006, and the general agreed. These decisions resulted in the establishment of the sixth interagency team to head the coalition in Iraq since the fall of Saddam, slightly more than two years before. The Continuing Detention Problem Page 428 Roots of the Detention Problem By mid-2005, the coalition's detention problems had begun to boil over again. A fundamental problem that had bedeviled the coalition from its earliest days was that the Fedayeen Saddam, insurgents, and militias that opposed the coalition did not neatly fit into any category under the Geneva Conventions. From an early stage, the coalition had decided to hold captured enemy fighters as civilian internees or security detainees addressed by the 4th Geneva Convention, rather than enemy prisoners of war covered under the 3rd Geneva Convention. That decision drove much of the coalition's subsequent detention policy because civilian internees were due considerable legal protections, including a review of their detention status every six months after capture. Based on a legal interpretation of the rules associated with civilian internees in the initial months of the war, the CPA had also established a requirement for an Iraqi-U.S. board called the Joint Detainee Committee to review detainees' status after 18 months of detention. Barring convincing evidence that detainees posed a security risk, it was assumed that detainees should be released after that review. Consequently, holding a detainee past 18 months required the approval of both the Iraqi prime minister and the MNFI commander. The requirement for this review did not change for the duration of the war. Another factor contributing to MNFI's detention problems was intense pressure from Rumsfeld to transfer detention responsibilities to Iraqi authorities as quickly as possible. His frustration with the fact that U.S. troops were still running the detention program in Iraq spurred him to send three snowflakes, short memoranda requiring action on the part of a DOD official, over a five-week period in February and March 2005, calling on Casey to expedite the transition. In his second snowflake, Rumsfeld was particularly blunt. Quote, we have to figure a way to get out of the Iraqi detainee business, he wrote. Iraq is a sovereign state with an elected government and must get arranged to take on these responsibilities of holding, interrogating, and trying their prisoners with relatively few exceptions. End quote. When told that developing a transition plan would take until early summer, he again pressed MNFI to speed the transfer of detainees, writing, quote, That is too long. I need something much faster, by mid-July at the latest. 
This ought to be a top planning and execution priority. End quote. Iraqi government leaders echoed Rumsfeld's views. Almost as soon as the coalition transferred sovereignty to the Iraqis in June 2004, Iraqi political leaders questioned why the coalition was conducting unilateral arrests of Iraqi citizens and sending them to detention centers not run by the Iraqi government. Demands to release prisoners became commonplace, with both Alawi and Jafari personally interceding with Casey on several occasions to obtain the release of relatives of constituents. For example, on April 11, 2005, Alawi wrote Casey in an attempt to take more control over the process. Quote, I would like to request that the detainee file be readdressed. There are numerous Iraqi suspects that have been apprehended during times of instability under the suspicion of involvement in terrorist or insurgent activities. However, these detainees have not yet been convicted of any crime and currently remain in an undefined form of detention. I consider this matter to be of the utmost importance and look forward to a briefing on how it is to be resolved in a timely manner. End quote. When these factors were paired with a rapidly expanding prison population, they produced a volatile cocktail. Rumsfeld's desire to transition the detention program to the Iraqis translated into a policy of little to no new prison construction, a decision that only exacerbated a rapidly developing overcrowding problem. That overcrowding, when combined with intense Iraqi political demands and the legal requirements of the Geneva Conventions, created tremendous pressure to release large numbers of detainees regularly. Those releases would create a rift between the tactical and operational level that would persist for the duration of the war. At the same time, the overcrowding would also lead to a loss of control within the camps, a problem that itself created further pressure for additional releases. Evidentiary Requirements and Review and Release Boards in the summer of 2004, MNFI had created Task Force 134, named after the building number of its headquarters, to handle the pressures on the detention system and to correct the problems that the Abu Ghraib scandal had brought to light. The new headquarters created regulations and policies to meet the legal requirements of the Geneva Conventions, to effectively manage the detention program, and to try to balance the demands from Washington and Baghdad. Some of these well-intentioned regulations created unintended burdens at the tactical level as they reshaped the military detention system into one resembling civilian law enforcement operations. By mid-2005, MNFI required two sworn witness statements or forensic evidence in order for units to detain an individual beyond 72 hours. For most units, this requirement was a substantial hurdle. Only a handful had conducted pre-deployment training with police forces on writing witness statements and collecting evidence. The quality of physical and testimonial evidence was uneven, resulting in some detainees ultimately being released. In 2005, Task Force 134 Commander Major General William H. Brandenburg tried to remedy the deficiency by sending a mobile training team to each brigade in Iraq, but transitioning combat soldiers to a new law enforcement-like paradigm was difficult. The new rules were meant to address concerns that some U.S. units tended to detain military-aged males in large dragnets not driven by specific intelligence, mockingly nicknamed block parties or roundups, as well as to set limits on how long detainees could be kept at each level. 
After initial capture, detainees could spend a maximum of 72 hours at a battalion or brigade detention facility and then either be moved to a division-level detention facility for up to 21 days or processed into one of the theater internment facilities. At each level, the detainee's arrest packet was reviewed, resulting in some detainees being released for insufficient evidence. Tactical units generally bristled at these requirements, with commanders objecting that the arbitrary timelines prevented them from exploiting intelligence obtained during interrogations, and that, once detainees were sent to theater internment facilities, units tended to receive no information about their further interrogations. MNFI and Task Force 134 officials countered that the timelines prevented potential detainee abuses by centralizing the process and simplifying oversight, and that information gained after the 72-hour time limit was often of little tactical value. Interrogations were conducted at the theater facilities in 2005, but lingering concerns from the Abu Ghraib abuses, coupled with the lack of resources to conduct the interrogations properly and exploit documents and other materials captured with the detainees, limited their effectiveness. Once detainees entered one of the coalition's four theater internment facilities, their legal status as civilian internees under the Fourth Geneva Convention meant that a review of detainee records was required every 180 days to determine if the detention should continue. These assessments were conducted by the Combined Review and Release Board, or CRRB, composed of MNFI officers and representatives from Iraq's Ministries of Interior, Justice, and Human Rights, with the Iraqi board members usually constituting a majority. There were significant drawbacks with this system, as there were no fixed criteria for release. The evidence that coalition units used to lead to arrests was usually classified, and witness statements often were taken from sensitive human sources, meaning the Iraqi members of the board often could not examine all of the information explaining why detainees had been captured in the first place. Additionally, the requirement for two witness statements or forensic evidence, which had not existed during the early months of the war, proved particularly onerous since most of the early detainees had neither statements nor forensic evidence in their detention files. Technology to facilitate capturing such forensic evidence, such as hand swipes that could detect explosive residue and biometric sensors, was only beginning to be fielded to coalition forces by the summer of 2005. Worse, as the interior and other ministries came under the control of various Shia sectarians in 2005-2006, the integrity of the board itself came into question at times. If the CRRB determined that detainees met the criteria for release, Task Force 134 would send notices to all of the multinational divisions 10 days before the planned release date. If any coalition units objected to a detainee's release, Brandenburg, the Task Force 134 commander, would intervene to halt the process. Quote, If the division came back and red-carded the detainee, I would hold them and not release them, end quote, he explained later, and, quote, I would override the CRRB, end quote. Brandenburg and Task Force 134 believed this approach was a sufficient check and balance, but the gulf between the tactical and operational-level perspectives was profound. Many tactical units believed the notification timeline was not sufficient for involving their commanders in the process, given unit deployment cycles and personnel turnover. In many cases, by the time the board reviewed detainee packets, the unit that had captured the detainee had already rotated home. 
While Task Force 134 made efforts to contact units in these cases, the reassignment of personnel or the wholesale moving of units from one base to another because of army transformation often meant the original unit and its leaders had dropped from the picture. Catch and Release From August 2004 to November 2005, the Combined Review and Release Board reviewed 23,079 detainee files, recommending 4,546 for unconditional release and 7,902 for discharge with guarantors, local Iraqis who promised to keep the detainee on the straight path, of which just over 400 were blocked from release after the multinational divisions raised objections. After the multinational division's responses and objections were evaluated, ultimately 12,025 detainees were released during this period. In sum, this meant that over 50% of detainees that went before the board were recommended for discharge when their files were reviewed, and almost 97% of detainees recommended for release by the board were ultimately freed. When these releases were added to the discharges resulting from legal reviews at the brigade and division level, statistically 75% of detainees were freed within six months of their capture. The high percentage of releases was, at least partly, a response to prison overcrowding. Rumsfeld's goal of handing over detention operations, combined with the coalition's overarching assumption that a coalition drawdown and withdrawal were on the horizon, translated into a U.S. policy of not funding prison construction in Iraq. Rumsfeld had initially wanted MNFI to return the tainted Abu Ghraib prison complex to the Iraqis by February 2005, a goal that was missed by more than a year. However, the slowdown in prison capacity was not matched by a decrease in the number of detainees being captured, so that the coalition's detention facilities quickly became filled to capacity and required a relief valve in the form of detainee releases on a regular basis to prevent dangerous overcrowding. With little to no new construction authorized because of Rumsfeld's aim to, quote, get out of the Iraqi detainee business, end quote, the question of whether to hold detainees or discharge them became partly a mathematical one. Each day, an average of 50 detainees arrived at the theater internment facilities, although this number spiked to 70 detainees a day during the higher tempo operations in the January 2005 pre-election period. As of February 1, 2005, the coalition's detention facilities held a detainee population of 8,517, virtually equal to the maximum detention capacity of 8,540. Despite numerous releases and some slow growth in temporary tent-like facilities, the capacity of the detention facilities did not keep pace with the growth in the number of detainees in 2005. By November, the population had reached 13,389, far exceeding the maximum capacity of 11,506. As a result, Releasing detainees became not just a policy goal, but also a security imperative if the coalition were to avoid escape attempts, prisoner riots, or the reproduction of the conditions that had led to the Abu Ghraib abuses. According to Brandenburg, one of Task Force 134's core problems was, quote, just the pure physics of it. We could only house so many. Security operations ramped up. We were scrambling to keep up with it. It is a function of how long it takes to build and get money to be able to build, and where you are able to do it. End quote. 
The MNFI headquarters and Casey also used discharges of screened detainees as a relief valve for prison overcrowding and targeted releases of detainees, of whom about 95% were Sunnis, as part of a larger plan to entice Sunnis into the political process after the January 2005 election boycott. Several detainee releases were part of back-channel negotiations to try to improve Sunni participation, including a large-scale discharge of 929 detainees in August and a second round of 1,134 in September. However, even with this approach, the buildup of detainees exceeded the rate of releases for both of these months and every other month of 2005 except for one. The high rate of discharges created frustration and mistrust in many tactical-level units who chafed at the idea of risking their troops' lives to capture insurgents only to have them released a few months later, sometimes seemingly without explanation. For many U.S. field units and commanders, the coalition seemed to have strayed into a, quote, catch-and-release, end quote, approach to the insurgency. By the summer of 2005, U.S. units saw signs that insurgents had begun to understand the detention system and were making efforts to manipulate it. In one case, an insurgent taken into custody by a Special Forces Operational Detachment Alpha in Anbar province defiantly told his captors, quote, I've killed a lot of tribesmen who were assisting the coalition in the past. I've probably been detained for it before. I'll go to Abu Ghraib or to Camp Buka for a few days. I'll eat my three meals a day, and I'll be back and kill them again, end quote. In another egregious case, one insurgent captured while emplacing IEDs had his combined review and release board, or CRRB, release papers in the truck that contained his bomb-making devices. The recidivism rate of released detainees was one of the most problematic and divisive issues of the entire process. As of December 2005, Task Force 134's statistics showed an impossibly low 1.6% recidivism rate. However, tactical units claimed that the recidivism data was often based on fake or mistaken detainee names and insufficient biometric databases that some released detainees were being killed rather than recaptured, and that other released detainees had returned to the fight but had simply evaded recapture. Added together, MNFI's detention policies had the unfortunate effect of creating mistrust between tactical units and higher echelons, as well as producing a lack of faith in the entire detention system. In some cases, it created moral-ethical dilemmas for junior leaders. Soldiers, non-commissioned officers, and junior officers on numerous occasions had reason to question why the dangerous insurgents they captured were often released from detention and back on the streets, sometimes within a unit's year-long rotation. Some commanders noted that the catch-and-release system created a perverse incentive among U.S. troops to use deadly force on any insurgent that did not immediately surrender. Anecdotal evidence indicated that, though most leaders did not act on this incentive, some troops and leaders condoned such practices. In one case, during the planning of a mission to capture an insurgent for the third time, an officer recommended that his men should, quote, just shoot him unless he surrenders first, end quote. Loss of control inside the camps The overcrowding of the theater internment facilities made it difficult for Task Force 134 to maintain a careful separation among different classes of detainees. One RAND report later described, quote, 
The large number of detainees presented such logistical challenges that, initially, their administrators were fully occupied with the task of simply warehousing them and accomplishing crude separations of those groups judged most likely to harm or kill each other if housed together. End quote. In 2005, the overcrowding created a lack of order and control in many of the coalition's larger open-air detention camps, where insurgent groups effectively took control of what happened inside and made them too dangerous for coalition guards to enter. Insurgents in the camps formed recruiting cells, conducted training, and in some cases ran their own Sharia courts. As new detainees arrived, Hardcore jihadists and other extremists set up propaganda cells to radicalize those less prone to extremism. One former insurgent leader from Duluya, Mullah Nadhim Jaburi, described the process of radicalization. Quote, While I was detained, my ideology changed from that of the Islamic army to that of Al-Qaeda. Because of the freedom that the Americans gave to the prisoners, I was able to learn and study Al-Qaeda's ideas while I was in prison. I had the chance to meet foreign fighters who fought in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Sudan while I was in prison. They started to move the Iraqis towards their ideas and beliefs. End quote. In addition to recruiting, insurgent leaders were able to meet with fellow leaders from across the country to network and exchange tactics, techniques, and procedures. Quote, we could never have all got together like this in Baghdad or anywhere else. End quote. One mid-level insurgent recalled in 2014, quote, It would have been impossibly dangerous. In Camp Bukha, we were not only safe, but we were only a few hundred meters away from the entire Al-Qaeda leadership. Bukha was a factory. It made us all. It built our ideology. End quote. Some frustrated tactical units began to refer derisively to the detention facilities as, quote, jihadist gladiator training camps, end quote, in recognition of this development. Riots and escape attempts went along with the lack of control. On January 31, 2005, riots at Camp Buka escalated to the point that U.S. commanders on the scene, fearing a massive prison break, authorized guards to use live ammunition to quell the uprising. Four detainees were killed and six injured. Another riot at Camp Buka that began on April 1st lasted three violent days. After discovering that the hand sanitizer in the camp's portable bathrooms was flammable, detainees set fire to tents and made launchable firebombs using slingshots and milk cartons filled with the liquid. The detainees also used wooden sleeping pallets as shields and broken chunks of rock as slingshot ammunition. In the riot's early hours, they targeted the on-scene commander of the 105th Military Police Battalion from the North Carolina National Guard, injuring him so seriously with a rock that he required evacuation. Just before the riot, military police discovered and destroyed a nearly complete 357-foot escape tunnel that could likely have turned the riot into a massive, coordinated escape. At exactly the time the April riots at Camp Buka were consuming much of Task Force 134's attention, Al-Qaeda in Iraq insurgents launched a complex attack on April 2nd against the detention center at Abu Ghraib. Seven suicide car bombers and up to 150 fighters struck the prison with crew-served weapons, vehicles, and mortars in a battle that lasted for several hours until a Marine Quick Reaction Force arrived from MNFW and turned the tide against the attackers. Zarqawi himself allegedly planned the assault, and the assailants were composed of foreign fighters and Albu Isa tribe members. 
The tribesmen were reportedly attempting to free fellow tribe members and seeking vengeance for coalition operations that killed some of their sheik's family. Twenty soldiers and marines were wounded in the fight. After the battle, Rumsfeld again questioned Casey in a snowflake about why the Iraqi security forces could not take over the detention mission. Halfway through Brandenburg's command, the problems inside the detention camps had become clear, as had the fact that Task Force 134 was too poorly resourced to solve them. In July, Brandenburg requested an additional three battalion headquarters, eight military police companies, and other support troops that would double the task force's strength to 1,700. The general's request would also expand the transition team concept to the detention field, creating detention transition teams, or DTTs, to train Iraqi correctional officers. Ironically, despite Rumsfeld's intent to close down America's detention operations in Iraq, Brandenburg's request was approved, and the task force became one of the few organizations in Iraq that grew in size on the SecDef's watch. Recognizing that the loss of control within the camps was also a facilities problem, Brandenburg pushed requests for military construction through the budgeting system. Despite considerable resistance from Rumsfeld and others in DOD, the construction requests ultimately prevailed, at least partly because of Casey's dogged support. The new construction would expand Task Force 134's detainee capacity while replacing most of its temporary facilities and tents with buildings that complied with the Geneva Convention's requirement to house detainees in structures similar to those of the soldiers fighting the war. At the same time, the new facilities would be designed to segregate detainees into smaller groups and allow the task force to separate radicals and leaders from insurgent foot soldiers and less ideologically driven fighters. Reflecting the slow speed of the military bureaucracy, however, none of those additional resources would arrive until after Brandenburg's departure from Iraq in December 2005, and the problems inside the detention facilities were left to his successors. By the late summer of 2005, MNFI had concentrated combat power in Anbar and Nineveh provinces and was poised to begin its campaign to stop the car bomb offensive against Baghdad by retaking the Werv and the Sinjar-Tel-Afar corridor. In doing so, Casey and MNFI believed they would be striking at foreign fighters who were the principal threat to central Iraq and to the elections scheduled for October and December. Unfortunately, this MNFI view of the problem missed the gathering threat of sectarian violence and civil war that was spreading across the Baghdad region and surrounding provinces. As the coalition shifted almost a division's worth of combat power to the Syrian border with the intention of protecting Baghdad, the perpetrators of most of Baghdad's violence were already within the city. Death squads from sectarian militias and rogue sections of the government were already working to cleanse the capital of their rival sects. In other words, the coalition was pulling forces from central Iraq's cities just as sectarian violence was rising there. These sectarian threats and the pervasive sense of fear that hung over the country manifested itself in Baghdad on August 31, 2005, as over a million Shia pilgrims made their way to the Kadimiya Shrine to mark the martyrdom of Musa al-Qadim, the seventh Shia imam. After a nearby mortar attack killed seven and injured dozens, a rumor began to spread among the crowds crossing the Al-Aima Bridge into Kadimiya that suicide bombers were in their midst, causing thousands of panicked pilgrims to stampede. 
As they reached a choke point near the bridge, the crowd surged through the small area, trampling those unable to keep up and pushing others off the bridge to their deaths in the Tigris River below. Nearly 1,000 died, most of them elderly, women, or children. There had been no suicide bomber, but the terror of the crowd had produced what was the single largest loss of Iraqi lives in the entire war. The tragedy at the bridge made clear how deeply the sectarian attacks had cut into an already fragile society. The violence in central Iraq was approaching the point of becoming self-sustaining, and the tinderbox of Iraq needed only a spark to send it into a conflagration. End of Chapter 16, Part 2 Going West, April to August 2005 Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021.